Austin, and I used to have to think each week about what I was going to talk about oil-related at the start of each show. It isn't that hard anymore. We'll just talk diesel prices yet again. But we do talk about other things on the podcast, too. This week, I've got a really good interview with Brent Orsuga. Brent is the co-founder and CEO of Pinnacle Growth Advisors. Pinnacle does a lot of things, but one of them is to recruit talent into and around the brokerage business. There's so much talk about recruiting and retaining drivers. What about brokers? Brent is going to be here in a minute to talk to us. So, as I said, let's talk about diesel prices. Let me tell you how crazy things are. On Wednesday, if you had a barrel of Brent crude oil, and no, Brent crude is not named after our guest Brent Orsuga, and that Brent crude oil was valued at that day's price, and you could snap your finger and turn it into a barrel of diesel, you would make $60 just like that. You have to understand that this is completely and totally insane. There has never been a day in the history of the oil industry, at least not any time in my lifetime with oil, where you could do that. And then the next day, Thursday, the day that I am recording this, the price of diesel on the CME Commodity Exchange dropped about 7.2 cents per gallon. It did this even though the price of crude and gasoline rose that day. And now that $60 barrel of diesel made out of Brent a day earlier was worth just $55. Note, this is still an incredible spread. But it just goes to show that on Thursday, a few traders might have thought that the price of diesel was a little bit overdone, and they sold it off even though the price of crude rose on that day. The intraday movements are not really that significant in the big scheme of things. And that's what I want to talk about. What is important is the spread between diesel and crude. And well-known oil economist Phil Verliger talked about this in his widely read weekly report earlier this week. I'm going to write a full story on Phil's report next week for Freight Waves, so you'll have to wait until then for a, a full discussion of what he said. But one of the key points in the report is that, I, I shouldn't say one of the key points, really the main focus of the report is that there have been several structural changes in the diesel market over the last few years that probably means that diesel prices relative to crude are going to be elevated for the foreseeable future. I won't say forever because forever in oil markets is an awful long time. And this is not a prediction that diesel and oil prices are going to stay high. The issue here is what is the price of diesel relative to crude? One of the key points in Phil's argument is that the regulation known as IMO 2020 is finally having an impact on diesel prices. IMO 2020 is a clean fuels rule that went into effect in, no surprise, 2020. Huge amounts of analysis all came to the same conclusion before it became a law. Because it was likely that distillate molecules were going to be needed to make the marine fuel that was compliant with IMO 2020, diesel markets were going to have less of those molecules to produce their product and diesel markets might get tight. And when that happened, the pandemic hit and the markets plummeted. There was no real test of the thesis that IMO 2020 was going to tighten diesel markets because demand fell so hard. It didn't fall as hard as gasoline, so refiners made lots and lots of diesel. Again, a test of the IMO 2020 theory was avoided. But now global demand has risen back to pre-pandemic levels, or at least is getting close, plus you have tighter Russian supplies. And it is entirely possible that IMO 2020 impact is starting to hit markets. Phil's report does, some, does have some analysis that is showing this. I almost feel a little bit justified here. I started drilling deep at the end of 2019, and I'll bet that my first commentary about oil markets might have been about IMO 2020. 
I probably predicted that rising diesel prices were going to hit the market as a result of IMO 2020. Of course, that prediction was hardly bold. Everybody was predicting it. And now after all this time, it looks like everybody was right. It just took more than two years. It isn't good news for diesel consumers. What it means is the same thing it meant back in 2019 as the new regulation was coming to the forefront. Diesel consumers faced a new source of demand for distillate molecules coming from the marine fuel industry that previously could use higher sulfur fuel oil that was not distillate-based. Maybe it won't mean that a barrel of diesel would be $60 more than a barrel of Brent going forward. Remember, the average last year was about $16. But it is another source of demand that took a while to sort of muscle its way into the market. We're going to continue on here now on Drilling Deep. You know, last week we, uh, we, we talked about the value of brokerages that are being sold in the open market. And this week, or last week, we had Peter Stefanovich of Left Lane Associates. I saw Peter at the Transportation Intermediaries Association annual meeting in San Diego uh, about two, two weeks ago, I guess a week and a half ago. And also at that, in the, the very final presentation, the very final forum of the meeting, uh, Brent Orsuga of Pinnacle Growth Advisors, uh, who was one of the founders of the, of the company, uh, gave a presentation along with a few others. And Brent is a, we'll, we'll, we'll go right to the bottom, right to the base term, right? He, Brent is a headhunter, among other things, for, for brokers. Uh, and uh, I thought to myself that you know, there's so much talk out there about uh, the recruitment of drivers and the retention of drivers. And I hadn't really heard much about the retention or recruitment of brokers. And I thought, well, I've just got to get Brent on uh, drilling deep. And, I, you know, it's a perfect, perfect match with our discussion last week uh, with, with Frank about the, the market for brokerages being so hot. And Brent, based on what you said, I think the market for, market for people who work at brokerages is pretty hot, too. I would say that is a understatement of the year. It is hotter than anything that I've seen. I've been specifically in this niche for the past 13 years, and I've never seen anything like what we're seeing now. We can dive into the exact roles, but this is craziness. All right. First of all, let me give you a chance to describe yeah. Pinnacle Growth Advisors better than I did. Sure. So uh, personally, I am based in Scottsdale, Arizona. We have team members all across the country, very, very niche specific to the industry. So since 2009, so the past 13 years, we really help companies that fall into three categories. Number one, let's call it the asset side. Number two, we do a ton in that, let's call it 3PL brokerage space. And then number three, uh, let's do the technology side of the industry, which is really expanded. So that could be either software or hardware, but this is all we do all day long is in this sector. All right. So you said the market's hotter than you've ever seen before. So is that just simply a like almost a correlation with the hot freight market, albeit a freight market that does appear to be slowing? Or are there other factors at work? Well, I think the biggest shift that we've seen is if you think about the last call, it even 18 to 20 months, the industry went operationally focused. The freight was there. The freight was abundant. So this is in the brokerage environment. Everyone beefed up on carrier sales and account management and any of those operational-driven roles. But over the last 45 days, that completely shifted back to sales. And I think that it's a great indicator of what's going on based on the calls that we're getting. Because when it's operationally driven, everyone knows you don't have to sell it, you have to service it. But all of a sudden, that shift occurred. So right now, the whole industry flipped on its head, and it is sales, sales, sales. So what exactly does a salesperson in a brokerage company do? I always think of the operational side of thing. Uh, if you're recruiting for a sales position in a brokerage, 
are, are they just simply out there trying to say, use our brokerage? That's it. I mean, they are literally calling to anybody that is shipping a product and trying to get the opportunity to service them. Now, you got to remember, every brokerage can be a little bit different, even from the expertise or niches that they have. So some are going to be better in LTL, some are going to be uh, truckload heavy, some are going to be focused on drayage. Even within truckload, we can peel back a lot of layers. Is it dry van? Is it reefer? Is it flatbed? Is it heavy haul? So there's just so many different segments of this industry, cross-border, for example. So all these brokerages try to develop a little bit of niche and then focus on that from the sales side. Now, when you say the sales side has picked up or the demand for people on the sales side have picked up, are you also seeing people who had been on, on the operational side of the brokerages coming to you and say, hey, you know, I might like a new opportunity. I'm maybe not as busy as I was. Uh, what kind of uh, sales positions do you have for me? Yeah, I mean, I think that anyone that's been around this industry knows that the money is really going to be on the sales side. So a lot of these people, they don't want to have to be at the mercy of moving loads based on the activity from the sales department. So they may want to pivot that seat. Now, there's still going to be companies that run cradle to grave models. But here's the other thing, too. A lot of these, let's call it technology companies that are coming in, they want people that know supply chain there is still a plug-and-play dynamic there. So that's becoming attractive to the market as well because it kind of can get you out of that brokerage environment but more into the tech, which is the next wave of the industry anyways. So there's just a lot of different options more than ever before out there right now. Is that Does that tend to be the way a, a career path moves? You start in on the operations side and then you seek to move up the sales because it is more lucrative? Um, that's a very common path. I think early on, you know, a lot of these companies expose people to various roles. And I think that runway kind of can determine itself. So early on, a lot of the Freight 101 training is going to cover operations. It's going to cover sales. It's going to cover track and trace and account management and all these different positions. And a lot of times in those companies, it's almost a trainer or sales manager's role to figure out where to put the people so they can be set up to win. But I think the people that have been exposed to a couple of things are obviously going to be the most dangerous. Now, where is your reservoir of candidates? Do you deal with people who are just looking to get into the business who maybe had not been in the supply chain before? I'm sure you're, I'm sure that reservoir is very, very wide. But uh, give us, give me an example, give all of us an example of, okay, you've got a position, let's say a sales position, you need to fill it. Where do you go? Sure. I mean, I can only speak for kind of how we operate and we're kind of known as the, uh, the snipers, if you will. We go in directly and kind of accomplish a mission with a lot of these companies. So for me, you know, a lot of the big, let's call it Chicago brokerage types of the billion dollar logos, those are amazing companies when you're 22, 23, getting into the industry. You're going to be trained well. They have the best tools. You're just going to be set up to win there. Those are the people that are very attractive to the small to mid-sized companies. Because again, in an environment like we're in now, not a lot of people have the ability or infrastructure to be able to teach Freight 101. They want plug and play, and they would rather grab somebody who's already been exposed to the industry and bring them into their environment. So for me, those, again, bigger companies are ones that I consider to be farm systems, and we know exactly when to tap the shoulders of those individuals and then move them to a better opportunity. Uh, but you must have a pretty stiff competition with the big companies wanting to keep their people, correct? Well, of course. I mean, that's that's the biggest shift that we're seeing right now, too, is that you know, there's so much demand for people that they cannot afford to lose what they have. And I've always said this, and you probably heard me at the conference, retention is cheaper than recruiting. And so I think what's happening is counter offers right now are at a premium. Um, I think that companies have been forced to pay up what they already have. 
And then what happens too is it can skew things because if you start to bring in people from the outside and pay them more than the people that are already with you, well, now you have all kinds of different discrepancies as well. So there's just a lot of moving parts in the past even uh, year, let's say, that have occurred. Describe the process of the scale falling off of some of these employers' eyes, where maybe a few years ago they thought that they were in the driver's seat in the supply-demand balance for labor, and now suddenly they realize they're the ones that need to go, I'm not saying on, on bended knee, but they're certainly not the ones with the leverage out there. The employees are the ones with the leverage. Well, of course, and, and you have to remember this too. This is, this is the most unsaturated industry there is. This is not Coke and Pepsi. There are 18,000 brokerages. There are more options than ever before. And so the candidates are in a great situation right now because it's almost like either you're going to step up and pay me where I am, or there's five people that are beating down my door and I'm going to go on some dates and see what's out there. So, you know, I think the smart thing that companies can do is to talk to their people, give them a reason to stay. Don't wait until they come in to quit to give them extra things. But a lot of that has to do with communication and just putting people in an environment where they have a runway to success too. Because you have to think, what are the major reasons that people leave? It's usually for upward mobility. It's usually for culture. It's usually for pay. So if you can control and fix those in a good way, there's really no reason that people should leave. So maybe, I don't know how specific you can get on some of the pay packages that are out there right now and how much of the increases are being seen by people who are jumping uh, from company to company. And, and maybe not just that, but people who are able to make the jump from operational positions to a sales position. What kind of numbers are we talking about here? Well, I think even if we look at the last year, there's been a big shift. I think every position in theory has gone up ten dollars to $15,000. So last year, a $50,000 carrier rep is now sixty or sixty-five. If a seller was making seventy last year, all of a sudden that's ninety. So what I call the financial thermostat has changed, and I think what's happening too is you get a lot of people that understand that dynamic, and if they can move the needle now, they're really never going to have to go backwards, and that's where it has people starting to think as well because there's all this talk about the great uh, reset or um, the great reset, right? The great resignation. But all it really is is a great reshuffle because of a great reassessment. People are moving. People are working. John, we are setting a 54-year record for unemployment. We are the lowest unemployment since 1968. So it's not that these people are on the bench. They're just more educated and there's more opportunities coming to them. Now, when you say they're going up by ten to 20000 how is the pay package structured? It's, I'm, I'm assuming it's not all straight salary. There's got to be an element of commission there. Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts. I mean, you're going to have a base salary. And we'll even talk about sales a little bit. You're usually going to have a base salary. You're going to have a commission model that in the brokerage environment is based on gross profit, right? You're going to have some of these companies that are just chasing logos and driving top line revenue that may pay on revenue. But in this industry, that's really deceptive because you can have a $7,000 truckload that you're only making 500 bucks on. And so a lot of the companies want to pay on that profit number. Um, some companies are going to do what I call a seat cost or a draw. Some are going to place on dollar one. Some people don't pay you until they've been paid. So now you have a 45 to 60 day lag there. So there, it's all over the board. Another thing that I've seen pick up as well, though, is what I'm going to call either sign-on bonuses or guaranteed commissions. Because if I'm a seller in a broker's environment and I'm going to walk off potentially my book and some commissions, you kind of have to give me a reason to move. 
You have to know that it might take me three to six months to recoup that book. Therefore, these companies are having to bridge that gap, if you will. That was never the case, but that's something in 2022 that is very prevalent right now. So bonuses are a new thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I used to laugh, right? People would come to me and say, hey, can I get a sign-on bonus? I would say, well, how many yards can you throw a football, right? This isn't sports. <laughs> and uh, so it used to be a joke, but now it's actually very real. And I mean, I could give you some crazy stories of deals that we're doing. I mean, we've been able to get $100,000 sign-on bonuses. We've actually even been able, this is crazy to me, get people contracts where their employment is now guaranteed for a year or two so that the person has more comfort when they make a move. And if it goes sideways, the company's on the hook to pay them all of a sudden. That was so, never the case. So what what sort of person gets these great deals? Let's say a broker's out there looking to move yeah. and he, he's, he's offered a $100,000 signing bonus. What kind of background does somebody like that have? You know, high producers, obviously, with a consistent track record. So I'm a big sports person, so this should resonate with people. The gross profit per month number is equivalent to me as points per game. So if you are in an environment where you're doing $200,000, $300,000 a month in gross profit, your stock is very high. Now, personally, I do not sell people as a book of business because I think if I do that, I'm putting a bullseye on somebody's back. The smart companies still want to pay for talent. If you have done it for them, you should be able to switch jerseys, different playbook, and do it for me. That's what we help facilitate. Do you have people who come to you and they say, look, I'm not really happy in my job. I think I might like to, to move. And where you say to them, you know what? I don't think you're ready to move. I think you need more experience. I think you need to work on this particular set of knowledge or skills. Do you have people like that? And what are some of the recommendations you give to them? Yeah, I mean, I think that people can test the waters too early. You know, I think that what happens when you see people make a move too early in their career, they go up the ladder, down the ladder, up the ladder, down the ladder. I'm not, you know, the world has changed where I think historically in the past, people always had a mindset, well, I need to stay at this company for two years or three years. It's going to look good on my resume. But the world has changed. We live in a world that is moving faster than ever. And if you are being recruited, a lot of that goes out the window. It's not your fault that you're good and talented and somebody wants that, whether that be 12 months or 18 months. But I do want to see people that have had a trajectory and a track record of success. I personally like it when people make moves because I think people can stay at a company too long and become a one-trick pony. So if somebody nowadays is at a company for 8, 12, 14 years, that's all they know. How adaptable are they within the market? And so if I've seen somebody make two, three, four moves in that time frame, I now see that they have a skill set that is transferable and they can adapt quickly. Do you deal at all with people just out of college? You know, not necessarily us. We get a lot of those calls, but, um, you know, the clients don't really need to outsource that. I think a lot of the companies that want to enhance their, the, their models, they'll have an internal kind of talent acquisition team, maybe an internal campus recruiter. And then they balance it out by bringing us in to get the hitters. So it's almost the best of both worlds, the one-two combo. You're going to have the newbies and you're going to have the experience. And that's where those symmetries align. You know, it's, it's so competitive. And I think about that. You talk about 18,000 brokerages and yeah. we know a lot of them are very small. How do they compete in this alligator pit? They don't. Uh, it, I mean, it, it's very, very difficult, right? I mean, it's very difficult for the big logos to get the best people. So you can only imagine you go into the Midwest 
and a small brokerage in Minnesota or Iowa, they're not, they don't have the same resources to be able to compete to play ball. It doesn't mean that they can have a great little business and a very niche or boutique type company. There's enough for everybody. They just are forced a little bit to go out and get different people and train them accordingly. So let's shift a little bit and talk about the TIA meeting in San Diego. You were out there for several days. Uh, any main big takeaways that you came from it? I mean, it was a kind of an interesting meeting because if it was held two two months, three months earlier, it would have been let the good times roll. And instead, most of the conversation was about the fact that the good times have definitely slowed down. So what were some of the key points that you thought came out of that meeting? I think it was good for people to talk about that because, again, we we get a lot of people that come to us almost as like a, hey, Brent, what are you seeing in the market, right? We're kind of that indicator behind the scenes that when that occurs. But I think there was some great insight into, well, why have things slowed down, right? And I heard just a lot of rumblings and conversations from Shanghai, right, being down, from fuel costs, from, um, you know, the fact that this is pretty interesting, too. Someone told me this. I thought it was great. People now with inflation are determining where to spend their dollars. If you think about the last two years, everybody got a new car. Everybody upgraded their house. Everybody bought new TVs and audiovisual and stuff because they were locked inside. Now that things are opening up, and as we're filming this, the mask mandate just got lifted on planes, right? Maybe people are more receptive now. People now are spending money on experiences than things. Spending money on trips spending money on going to NBA playoff games, spending money differently where a truck and shipment may not be involved. Well, I'm not spending any money on NHL playoff tickets this year. I'm an Islanders fan after spending quite a bit over the last three years. But anyway, um, one thing I want to come back to the recruiting side, uh, the, you know, the classic brokerage model is elbow to elbow all in the same office. Uh, is that going to continue or is it, does it, or is, is it all going to be remote work now? Well, you know, you have to remember the brokerage was built a certain way for decades. March 16th, 2020, it was forced to change. It was not an option. Everybody went remote because historically in the brokerage world, the formula was always productivity led to flexibility, which really led more towards sellers. But now the whole world got exposed to that. So what I'm seeing happen is a lot of the hybrid model. They're slowly trying to bring people in and adapt. Three days in, two days off, four days in, one day off. That does seem to be the new norm. I will say that sellers do always have the most flexibility. But this is where it gets hard, John, because this is not an, an A to B, black and white, simple, slow-paced industry. All these individuals are, a lot of us, are firefighters all day long. So there's something to be said if you're a seller and your account management and your carrier team is right next to you to turn your chair around and tap a shoulder. I need a price here. I need to move this load. Where do we stand on the status of that? That's very hard to replicate using Slack or Teams or Google Chat. So to answer your question, I think companies are slowly but surely implementing hybrid, but I would not be surprised from the energy, the culture, and the camaraderie if it goes back the other way. Last question. Uh, let's say I'm a, a college student and I, I think supply chain sounds like a cool place to be. Brokerage is a cool place to be. What do I major in? I mean, you can major in logistics, but what if I'm at a school where that doesn't m make any difference, where it doesn't have, excuse me, where it doesn't have that offering? It doesn't matter what they come out with. If they come out with a classic liberal arts and the ability to think, is that good enough? It is. I mean, you know, supply chain is such a broad term. You know, I'm here in Arizona, uh, ASU grad. Arizona State has the top three supply chain department in the nation. 
And they come and have me speak to these students and they have no idea what 3PLM brokerage is. It's just not taught. They're talking about procurement and, and all these different parts. But you know, here's the thing. This is a very customer-facing, relationship-driven industry. I don't care if you come from communication, from sales, from liberal arts. If you understand the importance behind this industry and you can be a problem solver, you can have great success in this environment. Well, Brent, uh, clearly I, I loved your talk in San Diego and I've loved our talk here and I wish I was many years younger. Maybe I would have been a freight broker. <laughs> it's not a bad path to be down, especially right now, because here's the thing you have to remember too. This is a trillion dollar industry that is and cannot go away. This is not a fad. This is not something that's just going to pop up. So this is a very, very important and impactful industry that people can have their hands in and be proud when they sit at Thanksgiving table to say what they do. That's right. Anyway, we want to thank Brandon Osuga for joining us today here on Drilling Deep. Brent is the founder and I guess the, you call yourself CEO or president of Pinnacle Growth Advisors. That's it. Nice out there in Scottsdale. I'll tell you, I wish I was there because it's uh, maybe April here in New York, but it sure doesn't feel like it. <laughs> so anyway, you have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freight Cash family of podcasts from Freight Waves. You can find us on all the leading uh, podcast platforms. I've been your host for today, John Kingston, and please join us again. Mm -hmm.